This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table today, I want us to look at Romans chapter 5. If you are new today, we are um, in the midst of a study of Romans. We are walking through Romans verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And in chapter 4, we were talking about justification by faith. And here at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul is giving us some results of justification. He's talking here about in Romans 5 verses 1 through 5 about what justification brings. What what happens when we are made right with God through faith in Christ? What does justification bring into our lives? What are the blessings that justification brings? So we're gonna talk about that today. Romans chapter five, and we're gonna look today at verses one through five. If you'll find that in your copy of God's word, or we have Bible's available to you in the pew if you want to follow along with one of those. But let's stand in honor of God's word as we look at it together. We've been talking about the fact that to be justified means to be made right with God through faith in Christ. So, So what does justification mean? Bring? What are the blessings that it brings into our lives? That's what Paul is talking about here. Let's begin with verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice. And hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. May God bless his word today. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you that through faith in him, that those of us who are here today who are believers have been made right with you, and we thank you for the unspeakable blessings that that brings into our lives. And so, Lord, today as we rejoice in the gospel, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see afresh the blessings of justification by faith. And Father, I pray for anyone here today that has not yet placed their faith in the Savior, that by your Spirit you would open the eyes of their hearts today to see what a Savior Jesus is. 
and that you would give them the grace to turn and to trust in the Savior and to enter into what it means to be justified and enter into the blessings that come with that. So Lord, speak to us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mary Poplin was a university professor in California and she described herself as the poster child for the category spiritual but not religious. Mary says, I was seeking happiness, self-fulfillment, freedom from restraint, all the while deluding myself about my own goodness. And yet in certain moments I could see glimpses of who I really was. I was not growing freer. My heart was growing darker. And then one night, in 1992, Mary had a dream about the Last Supper. And she says, when I looked into the eyes of Jesus, I grasped immediately that every cell in my body was filled with filth. Weeping, I fell at his feet. But when he reached over and touched my shoulders, I suddenly felt perfect peace. You know, God works through the Lord's Supper to touch lives, sometimes even works through dreams about the Lord's Supper to, to touch lives. And the Lord's Supper is for people who have been made right with God, justified by faith in Christ. And so we're talking today about the results of justification. We're talking about what justification brings. Paul shows us that here in these first five verses of, of chapter five. The first thing that, that justification brings into the lives of believers is peace with God. Peace with God. Verse one, he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the peace with God that Paul is talking about here in verse one is different from the peace of God, which he talks about in Philippians four. So there, Paul says, don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, when we choose to pray about things rather than worrying about them, we experience the peace of God. Now that is different from what he's talking about here in Romans 5.1, because the peace with God that he's talking about here is, is like a legal declaration that, that we as believers are now in a state of peace with God. And that means something else. It means that if we have not placed our faith in Jesus, then we are not at peace with God, no matter how much we try to convince ourselves that we are. Um, if you do much uh, air travel, you, you know that kind of one of the most anxiety-producing things for passengers on commercial flights is is turbulence. But what we need to understand when turbulence happens is that although it may be uncomfortable, really to the pilots, they know it's actually not really a big deal. Patrick Smith is a commercial pilot who flies the Boeing 757 and 767, and he writes this about turbulence. Turbulence is an aggravating nuisance for everybody, including the crew, but it's normal. 
It is a convenience issue, not a safety issue. The pilots aren't worried about the wings falling off. They're just trying to keep their customers relaxed and everybody's coffee where it belongs. And the worst of it, you probably imagine the pilots in a sweaty lather, the captain barking out orders and hands tight on the wheel. Nothing could be further from the truth. <laughs> While the passengers are fretting about the turbulence, the pilots are having a casual conversation about their morning orange juice. So just remember, the next time you're flying and you feel turbulence, just remember, this is not as bad as it seems. But listen, if you don't have Christ, then things between you and God are actually much worse than what they seem. You know, because you may try to convince yourself that things are okay with you and God. I mean, I've had people, people that don't yet know Christ, to tell me, hey, I'm good with God. Really? Is he good with you? <laughs> That's the question. And, and you see, the text here says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that without Christ, we are not at peace with God, no matter how much we try to convince ourselves that we are. Without Christ, our sins are unforgiven. And sin has to be dealt with. God is holy, God is righteous. He can't sweep sin beneath the rug. It has to be dealt with. And, and listen, here's the deal. Your sins are either going to be dealt with by you forever in hell or you're going to turn to the one who dealt with your sins on the cross. That's the crux of the matter. Do you know the one who dealt with your sins on the cross? Have you turned to Jesus and trusted in him and his finished work for you? Do you have a savior? With Christ, we are at peace with God. What a blessing. Second, since we've been justified by faith, we are, we are standing in grace. Standing in grace. Verse two, through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know, one of the things that, that people, when they're, when they're happy in their jobs and when they're happy like with their boss, I mean, one of the, thing, one of the things that they say is, you know, I, they say this about their boss. They say, I, I know where I stand with her, you know, or with him. Like there's a sense, they're honest with me and you know, I, like I know where I stand. Um, in, in, uh, in dating relationships, people like to know where they stand. Uh, a while back I, I kept seeing on social media like this uh, acrostic uh, hashtag CTR. And I think I probably had to ask one of my daughters, you know, what that was all about. I heard of CPR, not CTR. And they explained to me that CTR means clarify the relationship. Okay. So if you've been out with somebody a couple of times, then the question comes up, what are we? Like, are we boyfriend and girlfriend? Or are we just friends? What are we? Clarify the relationship. Well, the most important CTR that you better understand in your life is with God. 
Where do you stand with God? Where does God stand with you? God says that if you know my son, then you are standing in my grace. I am for you, not against you. I love you and I accept you. I've adopted you as my own beloved son or daughter because of the work of Christ. That's reality for you. If you know Jesus, you are standing in God's grace. his, His unmerited favors is poured out for you. You're his child. And furthermore, you have access to him as your father. Some of you work in the military or in government offices or things related to the defense industry. And some of you probably have like there's levels of of access where you work. And some of you might even have a card or a code that gets you into certain places that where if a person like me were to just kind of walk in off the street and try to get into those places, it would say access denied. What gives sinners like us access to a holy God who hates sin? It's only Jesus. The only way that sinners like us can ultimately have access to to heaven is through the work of Jesus. This is a picture of um, Billy Graham's tombstone and I love this. I love the humility and the rugged simplicity of this stone. And I love what it, what it says at the bottom. It just says, preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just love that. Um, but underneath that, you notice it has a reference to one verse of scripture. It's John 14, 6, which, where Jesus says this. I am the way, the truth, and the life No one comes to the Father except through me. Without the Son, we do not have access to the Father. With the Son, we have access to the Father. We have been adopted as the Father's very own children. And not only do we have access in the sense that we're going to go to be with him forever in heaven, uh, but we have access to him in the sense of prayer. We can come to our father all the time in in prayer. You know, my my three kids know that if there's a need in their lives, they can can reach out to me. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. It doesn't matter where I'm at in the world. If they're trying to get a hold of me and it's technologically possible for them to do so, they know I'm gonna pick that phone up and they, they know that if they have a need, I will, I, will, I will move heaven and earth if I can to help them. But listen, as a believer, you have a father who can literally move heaven and earth to help you. You have a father who spoke this world into existence, who has all authority in heaven and on earth and he loves you. He loves you as his child with a perfect love and you have access to him 24-7 because of the work of of Christ. We we as believers are 
standing in grace. We have access to our Father. Third, rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope. Now, joy is a pervasive theme in Paul's letters. I mean, we see it like in Philippians. It's just four short chapters, but we see forms of the word Cairo or joy 16 times just in the four chapters of Philippians. Joy is all over the place in Paul's letters. And, and yet we know that when he wrote that, he was suffering. A lot of times he was in prison or he was constantly being persecuted. The gospel, he was writing to people who were suffering and who were being persecuted. And yet he was saying as believers, listen, we have a joy that transcends circumstances. I mean, where does that come from? First of all, we know that Jesus is coming. We know Jesus is coming. So he says at the end of verse two, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is a reference to the, the second coming of Christ. And so we can rejoice because we know, know that no matter what our trials are in this old broken world, we know that Jesus is coming again we know that the glory of that is gonna absolutely just overwhelm any suffering that we have been through in this life. When we get to chapter eight of Romans, we're gonna see that he says there in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy with, to compare to the glory that is going to be revealed to us when our Savior returns. And so we have to look through our sufferings to our certainties. Look through your sufferings to your certainties, and one of your certainties is that Jesus is coming again, and that the suffering that you're going through is very temporary. Jesus is coming. Your forever destiny is to live with him in a new heaven and earth with a glorified body forever in a world without suffering or sin. Praise God. Like, so, like, we know that, like that's our future. So we've gotta like look through the sufferings of this life to the certainties of what lies ahead in the return of, of Christ. And that's the source of our, our hope. He says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So the word hope in the Greek New Testament is different from the way that we use hope in modern English. When we talk about hope in our culture, we're talking about something that we wish for. It's like something that might happen or might not happen. We hope for it. When you read hope in the New Testament, it is a very different meaning. It is a hope-filled certainty. Hope is not in, in doubt. You know, like when I watch um, a, a sporting event, a game or something that I've recorded, I've noticed that I watch the game a lot differently if I know that my team has won. <laughs> so if I know that they're, they're gonna win in the end, then it doesn't, whatever setbacks they go through along the way, like that just makes it even more glorious. Because <laughs> you know they're coming back. And you know the, the final result, it's not in doubt. And that's the case with us as believers. Listen, we know who wins. 
We know Jesus is coming again. We know that we're gonna be with him forever in glorified bodies, okay? And so the return of Christ, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, the glorious return of our Savior. There's another reason why we can rejoice throughout all circumstances, um, and that is because we know that our sufferings are not meaningless. We know our sufferings are not meaningless. Look at what he says in verses three and four. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So he says here that there's like this chain reaction when we approach our sufferings in a godly way. He says we can rejoice in our sufferings. Not that we rejoice for our sufferings, that would be masochistic, but we can rejoice in them. Like we can have this joy um, even as we're going through these things because of what we know. And he tells us what we, what we know here. We, we know, first of all, that suffering produces endurance. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. But what kind of race are we in as believers? It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. In fact, it's like an ultra marathon. This is really important for us to remember, guys, because we live in a culture that really doesn't value the virtue of endurance the way that the Bible does. We, we live in a culture where we want like instant results, like microwave results. Um, I, I think about like we're, we're watching, many of us are watching the NCAA um, basketball tournament, college basketball, and I was thinking about like who are the great, three greatest coaches in college basketball history. That would be John Wooden of UCLA, uh, Coach K of Duke, Dean Smith of North Carolina. And I was thinking, what do all three of those men have in common? If they co, if, if, if like they were beginning their tenure at their schools in today's culture, they would probably be fired within the first few years. You know why? Because all three of those coaches lost for several years before they started to win. But beneath the surface, they were building something great and something enduring. You know, even if you couldn't see the quantifiable results yet. Good things were happening beneath the surface. We just live in this culture where we don't prize um, the virtue of endurance. And so we bail on things. We bail on um, marriage so quickly and just things where, where God has called us to endure through tough times. And if we don't endure then we don't get to experience the development of our character, which is what he talks about next. He says, endurance produces character. Now, character um, in, 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 in Greek means testedness. In fact, you could even translate the word that way. Endurance um, produces uh, character or this, this, this kind of, 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 of testedness. And again, if you want to use like a, a sports analogy, you think about the NCAA tournament. Do you, if I were a coach and I were going into this tournament, I would want a team that's been tested. 
I would not want a team coming into the tournament that's kind of like just sailed through their regular season and blown out everybody and never been tested because that's a recipe for disaster in the tournament. You know, you want, you want a team that's had to go through some difficulties and, and who's been tested because that's going to make them better down the road when it really matters, right? And see, God tests us as believers not to make us fall, but to teach us how to stand, to strengthen us. And so endurance produces character. And then what does he say? Character produces hope. I love what New Testament scholar Doug Moo says about hope here. The Christian who responds to sufferings with a proper attitude will find at the end of the line that hope has been strengthened. Sufferings, rather than threatening or weakening our hope, as we might expect to be the case, will instead increase our certainty in that hope. Hope like a muscle will not be strong if it goes unused. And so sufferings present us with an opportunity to take our eyes off of our circumstances and all of the earthly things that we depend upon for hope and instead put our eyes on the God who is greater than our circumstances and greater than any problem that we face. And God forms us and grows us as his people through all of this. James tells us in James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Fourth result of what justification brings is flowing and flowing with love flowing with love. He talks about it in verse 5. He says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when Paul says here that hope does not put us to shame, he means here that our hope in Christ will not let us down. It will prove in the end not to have been in vain. It will not let us down. And one of the reasons that we know that is because part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, as he's going to talk about in chapter 8 again, is to assure us that we are loved, that we are children of God. The Spirit is constantly pouring out the assurance and the love of God into our lives. And one of the means that the Spirit uses to do that is what we're going to experience in just a few moments, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a a means whereby the, the Holy Spirit pours out God's love into our lives because it's here that we remember that Jesus' blood was poured out on a cross for sinners like us. Let's pray together. Let's spend some time in, in reflection before the Lord as we prepare to take part in the table. The Bible tells us that 
that every time that we come to the Lord's table, that it's, it's an opportunity to, to reflect, it's an opportunity to, to examine ourselves. Where are you in a walk with Christ? Do you have a walk with Christ? Have you been justified by faith? Have you been made right with God through Jesus? Have you turned to Jesus? Have you repented of your sin and trying to do life your own way apart from Jesus? And have you turned to Jesus and welcomed him into your life as Savior and Lord? Have you placed your trust and your confidence in what Christ has done for you on the cross and in the resurrection? Is that where your confidence is? If not, turn to him now. We sung it earlier, the Savior's arms are open wide to you. How much does Jesus love you? Look at the cross. Turn to him now. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. Forgive me of my sins. I turn from trying to do life apart from you and I turn to you Lord Jesus and I receive you as my savior and my king I ask you to come in and take control in my life I acknowledge my sin I know I don't deserve to be saved but I believe that Jesus died for me I believe his blood was shed for me and I believe that he was raised and, and right now I want you to come into my life as my Savior and Lord. Call out to him now. If you're here today as a believer, how's your walk with the Lord? How's your fellowship with the Lord? How's your fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ? You know, this, is a, this is a time for us to to, to come before the Lord and, and evaluate these things. Are, are there, is there unconfessed sin in your life? Are there things in your life that need to be dealt with, sins that need to be confessed and repented of? Are there relationships in your life that are broken? The Bible says, as much as it depends upon you, seek to be at peace with all people. Are you harboring a grudge or unforgiveness in your life, friend, that is toxic? Turn from that, release that. And so Lord, as we prepare to, to come, we, we do confess just the things in all of our lives um, that we need to turn from because we don't want anything uh, hindering our intimacy with you. We don't want things, we don't want sin clouding uh, our hearts, Lord. Um, we just want our walk with you to be right. And so, Father, we, we come to you now thanking you so much for a Savior. We, we know that none of us is worthy to take Part and what we're getting ready to take part in, we know that it's, it's only through Jesus. It's only through his perfect righteousness. It's only through his shed blood that we have access to you. But we praise you that because of the work of Christ 
that you have adopted us as your beloved sons and daughters, that we are standing in grace, that we have peace with you, that we can rejoice in hope, all because of the work of Jesus. And we remember his work now as we take part in this table. And we pray it in his name, amen. So if you're here today as a believer, as one who has been justified by faith through Jesus, um, then he invites you to take part in, in the celebration of the Lord's table. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.